Luke chapter 10, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but uh, let me start off with verse 1 to kind of set the stage. After these things, the Lord appointed 70, other 70 also. He's already picked the 12. Now he appointed 70 others and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place where he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray you therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. Then he tells them, go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Skip down with me to verse 8. He said, and into whatsoever city you enter... And they receive you. Please notice that phrase, and they receive you. Into whatsoever city you enter, if they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein. And say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you not. Notice the choices of the people in the city. It's not dependent on the, the 70, the two, and the, they go out two by two, 35 groups of two. It's dependent on the people that live there. And into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, into the city in other words, and say, even the very dust of your city which cleaveth upon us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be you sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Now before we go further and see the results that they got, please notice those two, uh, two verses. Uh, verse 9 where it says, of the city that receives you, it says, heal the sick therein and say... The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Now, how in the world could we conclude anything other than healing is a part? According to what Jesus said, healing has to be a part of the kingdom of God. He did not say into whatsoever city you enter, if they receive you, heal the sick and say, Jesus sent me especially to do a specific work, a special work, a miraculous work, but don't expect this to last everywhere or last all you know, throughout time or to work everywhere. That's not what he said. He said, healing is part of the kingdom of God. Say unto them, heal the sick and say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. How in the world would they expect to understand the kingdom of God coming nigh unto them except through the healing that proves that it was there? Furthermore, he goes on and says, now the cities that won't receive you go out into the middle of the streets so that everybody can hear and say, The dust of your city, we wipe off against you. In other words, it's not our fault. You rejected us. But make no mistake about it, the kingdom of God came. Now in verse 9 where it talks about heal the sick and say the kingdom of God has come unto you, that would be tantamount to saying to the city that didn't receive you, don't make any mistake about this, don't kid yourself, the healing power of God was here because the kingdom of God has come. You, re- you rejected it, you didn't receive it, not our fault, your choice, but don't say that God didn't do his part to bring it to you. He did, and you rejected it. Now, folks, if that's how healing worked in Jesus' ministry, why would it work any different today? If healing was a part of the kingdom of God in Jesus' ministry when he was here on the earth, and we have to assume, at least I assume, that he was wise enough to understand that it was part and parcel, healing was part, in, or the kingdom of God included healing, Otherwise, why would he tell the disciples to say that? He did not indiscriminately say, now I'm giving you power because I'm the son of God and I can do anything. I'm giving you power so that any and every sick person you come into, no matter what the city says, no matter whether the people receive you or not, heal them to prove that I'm the son of God. That's not what happened. He said it depends on one and only one thing, and that is whether or not the city receives you. 
Go in there and go and tell them that I sent you. Tell them that I'm coming. And if they'll receive you, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. But if they don't receive you, tell them it's not my fault. You had your chance and you rejected it. God did his part. Now, again, if that's the way it worked in Jesus' ministry, and Jesus had the, son, had the Spirit of God with that power, he was the Son of God. Born of a virgin, he had the Spirit of God without measure. In other words, there was no limit to the power of God that was available to him or what he could do. If that's the way healing worked in his life and in his ministry while he was here on the earth, why would it work any different now? Now, some people would say, well, it didn't work that way with Jesus. It did work that way with the disciples, but, hey, they were the disciples. However... We see exactly the same situation in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, it says Jesus went to his own hometown of Nazareth and he told them, he taught them. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted and so forth. He said, these scriptures are talking about the Messiah and it means me. And it said the, the people rejected him. The people said, who are you? We know you've, you grew up here. We know your mother. We know your, your brothers and sisters. We know your family. Who are you to say these kind of things? And it says in Jesus, Mark chapter 6, verse 5, if you're not familiar with it, take a look at it for yourself. It says in Mark chapter 6, in verse 5, talking about his own hometown of Nazareth, and he could there do no mighty work. It doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. In other words, he did not have the ability to do any mighty work. In other words, signs and wonders and miracles. He didn't have any major miracles. He didn't have any blind eyes open, anybody that was crippled that walked or anything like that. He could there in his own hometown of Nazareth do no mighty work. And he marveled at their unbelief. He didn't marvel because, wow, this usually works. I must have a power drain today. Something has short-circuited the power. I wonder what it is. God has never let me down before. I wonder what's happening now. No, he didn't question the power. He marvels because of their unbelief. In other words, the city of Nazareth rejected him just like he said that the cities might reject the 70. So if it worked that way while Jesus was here on the earth, not only just for him, but also for the disciples he sent forth, why would we expect it to work differently today? Where does the church get the idea, uh, and, and which is so commonly said, that if people have the healing power of God today like they had in the, in the early days of the church, why don't they just go to hospitals and clean them out? Why don't they just go down to, to places where people are known to be sick and just to, to heal the sick? Because healing is not indiscriminate. Healing is dependent on faith, or as it says in Luke chapter 10, the people receiving the truth of Jesus. At least the truth of Jesus being the healer. Now, uh, this has always been a mystery to me. It would seem to me that God would require people to get saved first and then, and then heal them. But that's not the way he works. Jesus will heal a lot of people and then give them the opportunity after they see his goodness to heal to make him Lord of their lives. But it at least takes reception on the part of the individual, the hearer. For the kingdom of God, specifically healing, to be made manifest in their lives. All right, back to Luke chapter 10. Jesus gives them additional instruction. But I want you to notice, I wanted you to see firsthand that healing was a part of what he told them to go do. Verse 17, it said, And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. 
Now, if you go back and read, we didn't read the whole thing, but if you read down from verses 2 through verses 16, through the end of verse 16, you'll find out Jesus didn't say one word about casting out devils. Not one. However, he sent them forth to minister the kingdom of God. So if devils came out of people, if devils were cast out of people while they went out, even though Jesus did not specify it, then casting out devils or deliverance has to be a part of the kingdom of God too, just like healing. And we would have to assume that the same requirement is necessary, and that is for the city or the people to receive the message of Jesus as the Messiah. So they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Let me ask you a question. I'd like to know who these 70 were. We don't know exactly. Bible scholars tell us that, uh, that there were probably 120 to 150 people that followed Jesus around all the time. That he was responsible for their care, not just for the care of the the 12. Because when Jesus looked for 70, he didn't have to go searching for them. He just picked 70. So there must have been more than 70 available or else he would have said, okay, let's just make the whole group the ones to go out. But he picked 70. What kind of people are these to try to cast devils out of people when they haven't been commissioned to do so? What would cause them to do that? I, I like these guys. Whoever these 70 are, I like them because they're willing to jump out there. But it also says to me that there's only one reason that I can imagine if I was part of that group. There's only one thing that would make me willing to try something that Jesus did not specifically tell me to do. And that is if I've seen him do it too. Come up on a situation that I've seen him handle. Seen him cast the devil out of somebody. Seen him deliver somebody. Me knowing, well, this is what this is. I've seen Jesus handle that. He sent me out here to do the same work as him. So let's handle this now too. And it worked. Why? Why did it work? Because deliverance is part of the kingdom of God. They were sent as emissaries or ambassadors of the kingdom of God. By the way, the Bible says you're ambassador, an ambassador of Christ. So you're an emissary, even a greater emissary of the kingdom of God than the 70 were. They were short term. You're the real deal because it's who you are. So they returned, 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. I want you to notice something, folks. Handling the kingdom of God and seeing the results of the kingdom of God in other people's lives produces great joy. One of the greatest ways to overcome depression or down in the dumps or whatever you want to call it is go minister the kingdom of God to somebody else. It's a fail-safe formula. They returned with, again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. All right, if they use the name of Jesus to set people free from the power of the devil, what are they healing people under? What name are they using to minister the kingdom of God to get people healed? It's got to be the same name of Jesus. In other words, even while Jesus was here on the earth, there was healing in the name of Jesus. Now, that is even more the case because Jesus has been given a greater name following his conquest of the devil through the resurrection. He's been given even a greater name than he ever had while he was here on the earth. So if healing was part of the name of Jesus before, if casting out devils or deliverance from the power of the devil was part of the name of Jesus while he was here on the earth, what is it now? Oh, if these things would just dawn on us. No wonder Paul prayed that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. That our eyes would be open to who we are and what we have. 
So the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And Jesus said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. When? When they used the name of Jesus to cast the devil out? Nope. That's not when Satan fell from heaven. When did Satan fall from heaven? Before Adam and Eve ever showed up. The Bible says that Satan rebelled against God and there was a great war in heaven. He took a third of the angels with him and God caused, Jesus, or God caused Satan to fall from heaven, as Jesus said, like lightning. Now, you know how lightning comes from heaven, don't you? How it floats casually and peacefully and slowly and it's just a beautiful, serene, peaceful scene. No, it starts in heaven and hits the ground, smack. And everything close is shaken by it. People get the idea that this war in heaven went on for days and weeks and months and years and God finally pulled it out because he had more angels on his side. It's not the way it works, folks. God and the devil are not in the same class. The devil raised his head. God said, be gone. He was cast out of heaven. Where was he cast into? Into the earth. That may have been the event that caused the earth to become without form and void because the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning and he did not create it without form and void. So if he didn't create it without form and void, but we see in Genesis 1-2 that the earth is without form and void, something happened between those two times. Maybe this is it. So Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. In other words, he's not saying, you defeated him when you used the name of Jesus to cast out devils. He's saying, Satan is a defeated foe. He's saying, the devil who is behind sickness, who is behind disease, who is behind oppression and, and, and bondage, he's saying, he's no match for God. He's no match for the kingdom of God. I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. And then notice what he said, because Satan is a defeated foe. Not because they use the name of Jesus, but because Satan is a defeated foe. He said in verse 19, behold, I give unto you power. Literally, that word power is the word authority. It means a right or a privilege. I give unto you the right or the privilege to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. Now, this word power means ability. And over all the power, the ability of the devil, of the enemy... And nothing shall by any means hurt you. So notice what he's saying. He's saying because Satan is a defeated foe. Now he's explaining to them what they've already put in practice. They've healed the sick. They've cast out devils. All in the name of Jesus. They come back. They're, they're just beside themselves. Wow, Jesus, this works so good. It even works on casting out devils. And you didn't tell us to do that. And Jesus said, yeah, that's because Satan's a defeated foe. The power of the devil is no match for the name of Jesus. Consequently, he said, I give you authority over all of Satan's ability. Now, folks, he did not say, I give you more power than the devil. He said, I'm giving you the authority, the right to use the name of Jesus because that's the source of the power. It's not yours other than the fact that you're in Christ and have been commissioned to do his work in his name. But the power is not in you. See, so many times people look at it and say, well, I just feel so helpless. So, does that change the power in the name of Jesus? Yeah, but I've just messed up so much in life. So, does that change the power that's in the name of Jesus? Folks, if the power was in, in, in you because you're in Jesus, then it would be dependent on you keeping the power 
effective. You keeping the power pure. You keeping the power up to snuff. But it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on the name of Jesus. Jesus is the one that's been given the name. And Jesus said, now you take my name and do the same work. So it's not about you feeling helpless or strong. It's not about you feeling worthy or unworthy. It's not about what you did right or what you did wrong. It's about the power in the name of Jesus. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. Oh, that our eyes were open to see. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. That's just a type of the devil's power. And he identifies that he means the devil's power when he says, using an inclusive or encompassing term, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. That means whatever method the devil tries to use to hurt you, the name of Jesus is greater. If he tries to hurt you with sickness and disease, the name of Jesus is greater. He tries to hurt you through poverty, the name of Jesus is greater. He tries to hurt you through tragedy or accidents or some kind of uh, sudden thing in the night, the name of Jesus is greater. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now notice Jesus did not say, this is the authority that I have. Everybody understood that he had the authority. The news is that he's giving it to his disciples. Now, some would say, yeah, but it's just his disciples. Let me ask you a question. Jesus called his disciples servants. He calls us joint heirs. Who should have more authority? The servants under the old covenant or the sons under the new covenant? How does it work with you? Do you give people that you contract with more authority than you give your children? I'm talking about grown children, children that are mature. Do you give your servants more authority over your family finances than you do your children, your family members? Behold, I give unto you power, or literally authority, to tread on serpents and scorpions... And over all the power, the ability of the enemy. You have authority over all the ability of the enemy. Brother Hagin used to use the example of the policeman in the, in the intersection directing traffic. He didn't have the power, the literal strength, to stop even the smallest car coming down the road. But he's got a badge that signifies the authority to stop traffic with one motion of his hand. Now, if that badge doesn't mean anything... Nobody's going to pay attention to it, and they're going to run right through the intersection. But the badge that you've been given is the name of Jesus, and there's power behind it, and it does mean something. The devil knows very well what that authority, what that badge means. When our eyes are open to what we have, then it means something to us too. Somebody was telling me a story the other day of, uh, um, I don't remember exactly how it went, but anyway, it was... Uh, I think it was somebody that started working for the county in the, the jail system. And uh, he was brand new into, into the, the, you know, just a rookie. And there was a uh, skirmish or something that happened among the inmates and so forth. And he was real tentative to use his, uh, use his weapon, to use his authority and take the guy down and that kind of stuff. And that he wasn't by himself. And so that afterwards, I guess this is common practice, afterwards the, uh, his supervisor took him in. And there was, it was on videotape or something like that, some way for them to, to critique it. And so the supervisor talked to him. He said, now, now, what did you do here? And what were you thinking here? And why did you do this instead of doing that? Trying to walk him through the situation. 
Well, sometime later, you know, I don't know if it's months, years, or whatever the case was, but he had more experience under his belt. The same kind of thing happened, and instead of being tentative about it, he used and exercised his authority instantly, diffused the situation almost instantly, almost immediately. Now, what made the difference? He became experienced and accustomed to what he had. He didn't have anything more the second time than he did the first time. But he used it more effectively because he was accustomed to it. He was more aware of what belonged to him and how to use it. I think it works that way with the name of Jesus. The more you use it, the more you become accustomed to what you have, the more proficient you become in the use thereof. Jesus said, Behold, I give unto you a power, literal authority, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I love that by any means. He didn't just say nothing shall hurt you. He said nothing shall by any means hurt you. If the devil comes up with some brand new way that he's never used against any other person on the face of the earth, it's still not going to work against you. Because the power of the name of Jesus, the authority in the name of Jesus, covers every means that the devil could come up with. Verse 20, notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, he says, now when it comes to the use and the exercise of the name of Jesus and the authority that's in that name, keep things in right perspective. Rejoice not because you've got authority over the devil, but because your names are written in heaven. Your authority is because you're in Christ, not because you're some big whiz because you've got the name of Jesus. And notice where it all started. Heal the sick. And to whatsoever city they receive you, heal the sick. If they don't receive you, there's nothing you can do but tell them. God did his part. Then they come back and they say, wow, this stuff even works on devils. You didn't say anything about that to us, Jesus, but we exercise the authority of, that you gave us in your name to cast out devils, and it works even there. And Jesus said, yeah. And the reason it works for healing, the reason it works to cast out devils and deliver people is because Satan is a defeated foe. And you have authority in his name over every bit of his power, the devil's power. So rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. I'll start reading in verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. He had to have help to get to his begging station. Who, seeing Peter and John, the crippled man, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. Notice that Peter and John knew they had something. How did they know? I wonder if it had anything to do with the time they spent with Jesus when Jesus said things like Luke ten nineteen. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. How did they know that the name of Jesus was as powerful as it was? We don't have any indication of any other miracle that's been done. The day of Pentecost has just taken place. On the day of Pentecost, it tells us that 3,000 people got saved. It tells us people got baptized. 
It tells us that people gave their hearts to Jesus. But it doesn't tell us about one miracle that took place. I mean, don't get me wrong. The outpouring of the Holy Ghost was a miracle. But you know what I'm talking about. A healing miracle or something like that. No record of any healing ministry since Jesus has been raised from the dead up to this point. How did Peter and John know that the name of Jesus covered healing? Because Jesus had told them it would. Jesus had demonstrated that it did while he was here on the earth. And he said, behold, I give unto you power. Wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. The power of the Holy Ghost. Well, they've received the power of the Holy Ghost as evidenced by speaking in other tongues. They're getting thousands of people saved. Got thousands of people saved on the day of Pentecost. Now, immediately thereafter, and when I say that, I don't know if it's the next day after the day of Pentecost or what. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we have to assume that it's a short period of time thereafter. Otherwise, the Bible would have filled in the blanks for us. The fact that there is no other record of anything that happened before tells me or indicates to me that this is most probably the first miracle produced in the church, first miracle of healing that, that occurred in the church. How did Peter and John know the name of Jesus would do that? Because the name of Jesus always did that. This is not new territory. This is just a continuation of the work of Jesus that they did while they were here on the earth. You remember the Bible tells us in Luke chapter, uh, uh, no, it's John chapter 9. I believe it is where the the uh, the crippled man or the uh, not the crippled man the man brought his son who had the fits he was possessed of the devil oppressed of the devil he brought his son to Jesus to heal him Jesus was gone so he left him with the disciples and the disciples couldn't do anything about it and they were shocked that they couldn't minister to the guy they were shocked that they couldn't cast the devil out of that little boy they didn't understand that the faith or the the lack of faith on the part of the father was the hindering agent. Keeping the power from working. They were shocked and they went to Jesus and they said, why couldn't we cast this out? Folks, if they weren't used to casting out devils, they wouldn't have asked the question. They were used to the power in operation and they couldn't figure out what kept this power from working this time. So they were accustomed to the power of God all throughout Jesus' ministry. Not just the 70, but regularly. So now that they're imbued with the power of the Spirit of God, they've got a greater measure of the Holy Ghost. Now not only do they have a change, a new birth, a recreated spirit on the inside of them, now they've got the infilling of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. They have no question whatsoever that the name of Jesus will do at least as much as it did while he was here on the earth before they got saved and according to what Jesus said, even more. So Peter says, look on us. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Such as I have, give I thee. You know, if the, church, if the church's eyes would just be open to who we have, just what we have, the same thing that Peter and John had, they weren't special because they were apostles. They didn't have more of the name of Jesus than you and I do. They weren't more saved than us. They weren't more filled with the Holy Ghost than us. They may have had a different call and a different commission, but that doesn't mean the same thing won't work in us occasionally. Maybe it would work in them more frequently because of what God called them to do and the office that he set them in, but that doesn't prohibit us from doing it from time to time. If only people knew what they had. No wonder Paul prayed for the church that our eyes would be opened to see what we have and who we are. Folks, that's everything. Absolutely everything. I have no doubt that there's a great segment of the church that's going to get to heaven. Excuse me a minute. I feel a sneeze coming on. I'm trying not to sneeze in this microphone. 
I have no doubt that a, that a certain segment, maybe a big segment of the church, is going to get to heaven and wonder, why didn't things work the way the Bible said? And the answer is going to be very simple, because we never came to the realization of what we had. Most people are praying, God, give us more. They don't need more. They need to find out and realize what they have. Use what they have now. Peter said, such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. He took the man by the, by the hand, lifted him up. His feet and his ankle bones received strength. And he went leaping and praising God into the temple. How did Peter know? Because he understood his authority he understood the dominion that we have in the name of Jesus. Look with me over to Mark chapter 16. Here's what Jesus said that dominion or that name would do. <clears throat> Jesus said to the disciples, this is before they're filled with the Holy Ghost, after they're saved, but before the day of Pentecost. He says to them, beginning in verse 15, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. That baptism is not talking water baptism, although that's a good thing to do. He's talking about being baptized into Christ. He that believeth and receives Jesus, in other words, shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs, everybody say signs. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Now, I know I ran through a comma there in, in most people's Bibles. But I believe that he's talking about the signs following the belief in the name of Jesus. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Five things he mentions. Number one, they shall cast out devils. So the name of Jesus still casts out devils according to Jesus. They shall speak with new tongues. We speak with new tongues. We're baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. They shall take up serpents. It's talking about authority over the devil. So authority in, over the devil is still a part of the name of Jesus, just like it was in Luke ten nineteen. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. That means the name of Jesus contains divine protection. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Just like it did in Luke ten nineteen, still does today. Finally, the fifth sign: for those that believe in my name. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they, the sick, shall recover. How can you lay hands on the sick in the name of Jesus and see recovering of the sick, the healing of the sick, except that the name of Jesus carries authority or dominion over sickness? Verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. Mark seems to indicate this is the last thing Jesus said before he left. It would be a good farewell speech or instruction. These signs will follow them that believe in my name. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. In other words, the name of Jesus contains dominion over sickness. So after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. And they, we know where Jesus went, where'd they go? And they went forth and preached everywhere. Now, this is, um, uh, is Mark telling us, uh, well, without specifying, then the day of Pentecost came and then they went forward. This is telling us then the Holy Ghost was poured out. We have to assume he's talking about following the, 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 pour, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem until you're filled. So after they were filled, what they do? And they went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them. Do you see in the word, uh, the, the verse 20, you see the word them is italicized? Anytime you find a word that's italicized, 
The translators added it. They're trying to help you understand what's being said. In this case, they missed it. Now, in one sense, they're right because the Lord does work with us, but the Lord does not really work with us. What it says is they went everywhere. They went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with and confirming the word. So as long as we're preaching the word, he's working with us. But he works with his word, not just with the person. So in that sense, it's not like the translators did us a harm, or, you know, did us a disservice, but they really missed the, the, the import of the statement. The Lord went with them, or the Lord working with, and confirming the word with signs following. Notice he confirms his word. Why? Because the word of God is the power of God. So when we use the name of Jesus in accordance with the word, he works with his word. Therefore, since we're the one using the word, he's working with us. Can you see that? These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. They shall lay hands on the sick and maybe, maybe something good will happen. No, they shall recover. Jesus is leaving no room for any exercise of his his name utilized in authority to not work. In other words, he's saying it should work every time. Now, what was the criteria for it working every time when Jesus was here on the earth? People receiving. People accepting. I think sometimes we do a disservice because we talk about that, and I I don't know how else to do it. You have to emphasize that. You have to emphasize the faith of the individual, but you can talk about faith so much that it makes people afraid that they don't know how to believe. And folks, receiving by faith is a simple thing. If I was going to hand you something, if I was going to hand you $20, you wouldn't have to get down on a knee and and pray real hard to figure out if you're going to take it. You just accept it and say thank you. That's how simple faith is. If I told you I was going to give you $20, but you don't see the $20 yet, if you accepted my word, you'd say, okay, thank you. That's all it is. That's how hard faith is. How hard was it for you to get saved? You didn't have to agonize in prayer over over salvation. You just said, well, okay, I'll accept what the Bible says, and I'll pray the prayer that they're leading me to pray. It's just that easy. That's how you receive anything and everything from God. Faith is not a hard thing. Faith is a simple thing. Faith is a natural byproduct of accepting the truth of the word. Yeah, but I don't understand it, Pastor Mike. Understanding is not a criteria for faith. Faith begins where the will of God is known. Faith does not begin where you understand how it's all going to work. There's very little of the things of God that we really understand how it all works. We may have a glimpse. We may have just a, a hint of knowledge about it. But you don't have to understand how everything's going to work. As a matter of fact, most of the time you won't understand how it's all going to work. There's a lot of things we pray for. Father, I, re- I believe I received my needs met in Jesus' name. Now, I have no idea how you're going to do it. Looks too big for me to be done. I have no idea how you're going to do it, but I believe I received my needs met in Jesus' name. Well, you understanding how it's going to work doesn't, is not a criteria for that, is it? That's how God works. Faith is a simple thing. Receiving from God is a simple thing. Very simple thing. Turn with me over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Here's James writing to the church. Most Bible scholars agree that James was the first book written in the New Testament. Even before the Gospels. James was the first pastor of the church at Jerusalem. We know that from the book of Acts. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. 
It couldn't have been James, the brother of John, because he was beheaded in the early days of the church before James became the pastor. But in about James, Acts chapter 15, we see that James is in charge. He's the one making the decisions, even above Peter and some of the, other, of the remaining 12 of the apostles, the original apostles. And notice what James said, <clears throat> writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to the church. He tells us how it should work in the church. Verse 13, chapter 5, verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? That means test, trial, or trouble. Anybody going through a hard place in your life, difficult time? Let him pray. Why? Because God hears your prayer. God answers the prayers of his children. He answers prayers that are prayed according to his word. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. It's not always going to be hard times in life. Your Christian life, your Christian walk is not going to be just one struggle after the other. They're going to be good times. Enjoy them. Verse 14, is any sick among you? Now, the, the implication is there shouldn't be. Because he doesn't say, now, writing this to the churches, I know there's tons and tons of sick people everywhere. He says, is any sick among you? The implication is there shouldn't be. Why? Because the name of Jesus has authority or dominion over sickness. <clears throat> is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. P.C. Nelson, who is a Greek scholar, said of this verse of scripture he said the implication in the original greek is that uh, something along this line is any sick uh, or is there any among you that are beyond doing anything for themselves regarding sickness or disease the implication is we should use the name of jesus first and foremost on our own because it belongs to us but if you're past the place where you can get help on your own here's how you get help from the church let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. You know one thing that, uh, that's, uh, well, how do I say this? Um, I don't want to leave any uncertainty about this, but I, wanna, I don't want to preach it as, as uh, I don't want to be dogmatic about this. It seems to me, and, and I've been doing this for about 30 years now, I've found that from the time that I've been pastoring, the 28 years that I've been pastoring, I've found that I get greater results in praying for the sick after somebody has attempted and tried to do something on their own with the name of Jesus. In other words, if somebody catches the sniffles and they run to me first, I don't get as good a results with that as if somebody has been standing in faith for something on their own and finally says, Pastor Mike, I need your help. Then when I heard what P.C. Nelson said about this verse of Scripture, that makes sense to me. God does not want you to use your pastor or anybody else to be your first line of defense. Your first line of defense is the name of Jesus. To be honest with you folks, the only line of defense is the name of Jesus because that's what a pastor or anybody else is going to have to use if they're going to help you too. Is any sick among you? Is any among you beyond doing anything or getting something for themselves? Then let them call for the elders of the church. And let them, the elders, pray over him the sick, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer face shall save the sick. Please notice it's not the elders. Please notice it's not the anointing with oil. It's the prayer of faith that shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. It's clearly save means heal. It's translated heal in other places. Heal and made whole in other places. But even if you didn't know that about other scriptures, you'd have to understand that it's talking about healing because it's talking about the Lord raising them up. Well, raising them up from what? Raising the sick up from what? From sickness. And notice it's the prayer of faith that saves the sick. 
What is the prayer of faith? Prayer of faith is the exercise of dominion on the part of the individual. It's the exercise of dominion. I can't just say, be healed and it worked because I'm some special minister or a pastor. If that were the case, then Jesus would not have told the 70 that the cities had to receive them in order for the healing work to take place. He would have said, I've given you special power because I'm the son of God. It's not about anybody else. It's about me. And so therefore, go do what I'm telling you to do. Yet so many in the church seem to have that same idea about ministers that either have a healing ministry or whatever, believe in healing or whatever the case is. If I can just get a healing preacher to pray for me, then we'll see what happens. Well, if you don't receive what the Bible says about healing and about what belongs to you in the name of Jesus, nothing's going to happen. Any more than it happened with Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth. Are you out there? And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. The prayer of faith is necessary because it's the exercise of dominion on the part of the individual. You cannot expect to receive anything by faith. You cannot pray the prayer of faith. You cannot accept anything by faith unless you exercise your will, your determined purpose to receive. The prayer of, okay, Father, we're asking for healing now. Let's see what happens. Never works. Because you have to use your will. It's not an expression of your will to pray like that. The expression of your will is, Father, I believe when hands are laid on me, I receive my healing in Jesus' name. That's faith in action because it's you exercising dominion from within. Why? Because you're the only one that has dominion over your body. You're the only one that has dominion where healing is concerned. I don't have it. Nobody else has it. You have it for you. Now, if you tried to exercise that dominion and you need help, great. That's you operating in faith along with somebody else praying in faith. And that prayer of faith heals the sick and the Lord raises them up. Do you see it? Folks, it all comes down to dominion. It all comes down to authority. John Lake talked about how that after he came back from South Africa and uh, started ministering in uh, Spokane, they had the healing rooms. There was um, uh, great notoriety that came as a result. The newspapers would write up uh, the healings and the things that took place. They would even print his sermons. Many times they'd print his sermons on the front page. Over a period of time, there were um, in excess of a half a million documented healings, many of them incurable conditions. And, uh, and the, the newspapers proclaimed the city of Spokane, Washington, the healthiest city in America because of the healing rooms of John Lake there in the city. I just wish newspapers would talk about the things of God nowadays. Things have really changed, haven't they? I mean, just tell about something good that happened. That, that'd be good. Anyway, John Lake said because of the notoriety that they received, they had a, a certain building where they had um, uh, an office building type thing that they had rented and they were using some of the, the individual offices for healing rooms where the people would come in during the week and they'd lay hands on them and minister life to them and stuff. And they said that uh, uh, one medical group, I don't know if it was a hospital or whoever it was, but they became so um, curious about what was going on that they asked for permission and received permission from Lake to use one of these rooms, these office rooms, or offices in this building that they had and, uh, and set up an x-ray machine. And they would x-ray people as they would pray for them. And uh, John Lake talked about this one person that, uh, th- and this is just one, of, one example of hundreds perhaps, 
But he talked about this one person that came in that had been given up. He was from another part of the country. He'd been given up as an incurable tu- uh, tuberculosis patient. And his, uh, his lungs were just filled with tuberculosis. And, and there was no hope, no help, nothing that the doctors could do. Well, he made it to Spokane, Washington. And, uh, and he began coming to the healing rooms. He began uh, coming to the services there that, that Lake would have and so forth. And, and as I understand it, there's not a, not a whole lot of documented evidence of, of what and how exactly things took place. But they would have regular services and regular service times, not every day of the week, unless there was something special going on. But then they'd have the healing rooms available for people to come during the week. And they would encourage people to come every day. Let us pray for you every day. Now, some people would say, well, that can't be the prayer of faith because they're praying for folks over and over and over again. But that's not what they did. They would pray the prayer of faith one time, and then they'd minister life to them every time that they came afterwards. They would just minister life, just, and, and they'd say that. We lay hands on you in the name of Jesus to minister life to your flesh. Well, this one guy that had tuberculosis, first time he came, they took an x-ray of him after they prayed. Or maybe even before they prayed the first time. I'm not sure. But anyway, they took an x-ray the first day that he came, first day that he was there. And his lungs were just filled with tuberculosis. And it was just a horrible situation. He was coughing up stuff and just really nasty. And so he kept coming back. And for 10 days, every time they'd pray for him, they'd take the x-ray. There'd be less evidence of the tuberculosis in his lungs. Finally, after 10 days, his lungs were clear. They had a, they had a, a, a string of, of x-rays. That they could show day one, day two, day three, all the way up to day ten. By day ten, there is no evidence whatsoever. He's not coughing. He's not doing any of the having other any other symptoms, whatever they might be. He was totally and completely healed. Now, why? Because somebody knew their authority and dominion in the name of Jesus. And the, what about the tuberculosis guy? He just simply received. He just accepted it to be true. Did he know how it was going to work? Of course not. Did he have complete confidence the first day he was prayed for that it was done? Of course not. Not any more than you and I. He just accepted it by faith. But the more they ministered to him, the more the life of God took hold in his flesh, and he was healed. Lake talked another, about another situation where dominion was concerned uh, because of the notoriety that the healing rooms got and, uh, and so forth. There were a lot of other groups that, um, uh, that were competing with him for the, the real answer, the real thing, you know. And he said there was a, the, the greatest hypnosis society in America at that time. And hypnosis was a big deal back then, I guess. Uh, they, they were experimenting with stuff and they got the idea that they could, you know, alter people's minds through hypnosis and therefore change things in their bodies and so forth. And so there was, uh, there was a, the hypnosis society convention that was taking place in a certain city. And uh, there were going to be some other folks that uh, had other... Um, um, well, so-called methods of, of healing or deliverance or whatever. And so they asked Lake if he would come and be a part of the, the panel discussion or the symposium or whatever. And Lake said, well, no, I'm, I'm not interested in coming and having a debate. He said, but I'll do this. He said, I will come if, uh, if you'll set up uh, a group of five people or, or a group of people and let each one of the, the different groups that you're having have a crack at delivering them and I get to go last. So they met his terms. And so they, they came in, they came up with, the, they settled on five people, whatever it was. And of these five people, the hypnosis society, whoever it was, their, their expert, whatever, tried his thing, nothing happened. The other people tried their thing, nothing happened. The Christian science people tried their thing, nothing happened. And Lake came and, and just laid hands on them in the name of Jesus, commanded them to be healed and delivered. 
Three of them were healed instantly. One was healed a few days later, and the, the last one, the fifth one, died. Now, you may look at that and say, well, how in the world could the fifth one die? I mean, if he's exercising the same dominion over each and every one, because folks' dominion depends on the individual receiving. We have been given authority over sickness and disease. That's not even in question. The name of Jesus has authority over all sickness and all disease. The question is, do you receive it? And if you do receive it, which you should, I mean, believers should believe. That should be the easiest thing in the world for a believer to do is to believe. You believe the word of God and you saw it worked for your your salvation. Why would the word of God be any different where your healing is concerned? And here's the difference. Here's the only difference. And that is time. Nobody ever prayed the prayer of salvation and had to wait more than a moment for it to work. But when it comes to healing, sometimes things things don't show up as quickly. But the same authority is at work. The same dominion is at work. It has to be so, folks, or else the word of God is a lie. Amen? Amen.